right, well, we are going to go to the book of Acts today. Last week, we really didn't. We kind of talked a little bit about what's going on in Israel and talked about end times with Ezekiel specifically. But today, we're going back to the book of Acts, Acts 17. And so we'll start a new chapter today. We spent a long time in Acts 16, a great chapter. But, I mean, just reminder why we're doing this, because we're going to see a lot of this in Acts 17. I truly believe with all my heart that as we get closer and closer to the last days, and I believe we're pretty close, that you're going to see the book of Acts come to life. And what I mean by that, you're going to see the book of Acts in our day. You're going to see the exact same things that happen in the book of Acts happen today in 2023, 2024, however long it is before Christ Jesus comes back. You're going to see the exact same things. You're going to see God pour out His Spirit on people. How do I know? Because His Word says it. I mean, Acts 2 says that. Joel says it even before that. And Peter, just all he does is quote Joel 2 and Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. And he tells us how he's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to pour it out on young and old alike. And he's going to do it for a very specific reason. And that reason is for the good news or the gospel to go forth. And the gospel has to go forth. Remember, Matthew 24, 14, the gospel has to go forth. It has to reach all the nations of the earth, all the languages, people groups, affinity groups, whatever you want to say it. It's got to reach those nations before Jesus Christ can come back. The only way that's possible is through the move of the Holy Spirit of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the book of Acts is about, the power of the Holy Spirit. The whole book of Acts is about the work of the Holy Spirit. And He works through individuals. He works through churches. And so now we're starting to see that as we kind of got into the latter half of the book of Acts. Because Paul is work, or the Holy Spirit is working specifically through Paul, starting churches, and then the Holy Spirit is working through those churches, continuing to spread the gospel so that people can be saved. And then eventually, Jesus Christ comes back to this earth. So we are going to see the exact same things here happen in our day that we're living right now. So when you start seeing them, I want you to understand what's happening so you can understand that Jesus Christ is getting close to coming back. The birth pains are getting intense and they're getting frequent. And so that's why we're studying the book of Acts. And of course, here in Acts chapter 17, what we're talking about is Paul's second missionary journey. So we read about his first missionary journey, starting kind of in Acts chapter 13. He was basically with Barnabas there, pastoring, kind of leading the church of Antioch. And the church of Antioch is an incredible biblical church. And they did what Jesus said to do. They sent people out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they sent Barnabas and Paul out, and they went on a missionary journey. Then eventually they come back to Antioch to share all that God has done through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're there teaching and leading. And then it's time to go on a second missionary journey. And of course, Paul and Barnabas, we talked about this, they kind of get in a fight. They split. And what happens is Barnabas goes one way and Paul goes the other way, basically. Barnabas takes John Mark with him, and Paul takes a young man named Timothy with him. Timothy, Silas, and Luke, who is writing the rest, or all of the book of Acts, but specifically first person writing it because he's there watching it. He's witnessing everything that happens. So this second missionary journey is a journey that has roughly about 2,700 miles in it. And so remember, they don't have planes, they don't have trains, they don't have automobiles. So Paul's doing all this by foot or some by boat. You see a little bit of that today in Acts chapter 17. He rides on a boat, but they don't have any modern day transportation. And really, we're going to read a verse in just a second, the first verse here in Acts chapter 17. And we, have, we just don't think about this. But this first verse 
there is a hundred miles that Paul travels in this one verse. A hundred miles. So I know we kind of read a book in the Bible and we think it kind of all happens right there at the same time. Well, this is over a long period of time what we're reading. And so it is so important. And what you're going to read really will enlighten you reading the rest of the Bible, especially the New Testament. So let's just look at it and we'll just go through Acts chapter 17 here together. So look at verse 1. The Bible says, Now Paul and Silas then traveled through the towns of Amphipolis and Apollonia, and they came to Thessalonica. So again, those towns, there's three of them, they're about 100 miles that he had to travel to go to all three of those towns. Of course, he is in Greece, so that's where he is, and he comes to this city of Thessalonica. Now this city should be familiar to you because you have some books in the Bible that come from this church, Thessalonians. Okay, so Thessalonica is a port city in Greece. It's a large city in Greece. It was, even in Paul's day, about 200,000 people. So that's a large city in ancient Greece. It's a large city, and it's a very important city just from a trade and just economic. And there's still a city there today. Now, they've changed the name. It's not Thessalonica. It's Thessalonica. I don't know why they changed the name, but that's how it's pronounced today. But this city still exists. Most of the cities that we read about in the New Testament, they don't exist any longer, like Ephesus. So they're just ancient cities, they're dead cities, but this city still exists. Later on in Acts 17, we're going to read about Athens. Guess what? Athens still exists, and many of you might have went to Athens. But so Paul now arrives in Thessalonica, and this is what he does, what he always does. Where there was a Jewish synagogue. And verse 2 tells us why that's important. As was Paul's custom, he went to the synagogue service for three Sabbaths in a row, and he used the Scriptures to reason with people. Okay, now we've seen this in Paul's first missionary journey. We're seeing it now in his second missionary journey. This is what he always did. He would go to a city, and he would hopefully try to find a Jewish synagogue. And remember, a Jewish synagogue was just a gathering place. It might not be a building, but it was a gathering place. And a city could have a synagogue if they had 10 Jewish men. Now remember, like Philippi, when he went to Philippi, there wasn't a synagogue because there weren't 10 Jewish men. But in Thessalonica, there are. So he went there, and he went there because he's a Pharisee, basically. And so he can speak their language. And he was going to preach to them and reason to them and share the gospel with them. So what did he do? As Paul's custom, he went on the synagogue for three Sabbaths in a row and he used the Scripture to reason with people. He explained the prophecies and he proved that the Messiah must suffer and rise from the dead. He said, this Jesus I'm telling you about is the Messiah. Okay, now this is just really, really important, I think. Because the Apostle Paul does what we should still do today. How did he go into the synagogue and how did he reason with them and how did he preach to them? The Bible says that he used the Scriptures. Okay, now what Scriptures did he use? Well, he had to use the Old Testament, right? Because we don't have the New Testament at this point. None of the New Testament has been written. So everything he did here had to be the Old Testament but it also could have been something else. What else could it have been? Well, it could have been the words of Jesus, right? 
Okay, are the words of Jesus Scripture? The words of Jesus are Scripture. And so they might not have been recorded, but do you think Paul knew them? How did Paul know them? Well, Jesus told him, right? I mean, remember, and we've read, we read this back early on in Acts, Paul kind of goes away for a couple of years, and he is not on the scene. And so he's basically in the desert. He's basically in his seminary or his training. And who comes to him and teaches him or just pours into him specifically? Paul says it was Jesus who did that. So Paul not only knows the words of Jesus from like Peter and the early church who would tell the stories and the parables over and over and over again. Paul knows all that. But he knows some things they don't know because Jesus came to him specifically and taught him. Okay, so I'm sure, pretty sure he used the words of Jesus along with the Old Testament. Now, he's specifically talking here about Jesus Christ being the Messiah. So he had to talk about the crucifixion. He had to talk about the resurrection. So you almost, obviously, he had to use Isaiah 53, right? I mean, we've seen Isaiah 53 in the book of Acts before. Do you know where else? Okay, if you go read Acts chapter 8, there's an Ethiopian traveling in the desert. Do you know what he's reading? Isaiah 53. He's reading Isaiah 53 in the desert, riding in a chariot, and the Holy Spirit grabs Philip out of a city in Samaria that he had just had an incredible revival and said, I want you to go to the desert. And for some reason, Philip goes to the desert, and he goes there, and there's one man in the desert reading Isaiah 53. And the Holy Spirit has to punch Philip in the side and say, hey, go ask him what he's reading. And so he goes up and says, Sir, do you know what you're reading? He says, do you understand it? And the Ethiopian says, How can I unless there's someone here to explain it to me? And then Philip shares with him the gospel out of Isaiah 53. Now remember, Isaiah 53 was written almost 600 years before Jesus was ever born. But it's as if Isaiah is sitting at the cross and he talks about the cross, but not only the cross, even what happens before the cross with the flogging. He talks about Jesus being buried in a rich man's tomb. He gives the whole story hundreds of years before Christ is ever born. And so surely Paul used Isaiah 53 in a Jewish synagogue. I bet, I'm just betting here, he probably used Psalm 22. Do you know who wrote Psalm 22? Well, King David wrote Psalm 22. So do you think that would play pretty well in a Jewish synagogue? Probably play pretty well in a Jewish synagogue. But Psalm 22 is written thousands of years before Jesus Christ was ever born. And do you realize out of Psalm 22, there are 33 direct prophecies fulfilled by Jesus Christ? Psalm 22 alone. Jesus Christ quotes from Psalm 22 on the cross. You know what He says? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a direct quotation of Psalm 22. So I don't, the Bible doesn't tell us what he used, but he used the Old Testament. He used scriptures, I'm assuming, like that. Now here's a great question. In our day, should we use the Old Testament as well as the New Testament to share Jesus? Well, heck yeah, we should. It is the scripture, right? Now I understand people tell you, oh, don't use the Old Testament. People can't understand the Old Testament and it distracts people or takes people away from Christ rather than pointing them to Christ. Well, you can't understand the New Testament without the Old Testament. You can't do it. You need the whole counsel of Scripture. And so that's what Paul used. That's what he used. And this is what happens. What always happens when you do that, because Paul later tells us in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. This is what happens. Acts 17, Luke says, Some of the Jews who listened 
were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. Now, did all the Jews come and join Paul and Silas and follow Jesus? No, some. Now, we don't know what that word means. We don't. We don't know if some means two. We don't know if it means 20. We don't know if it means 100. We have no idea what that means. But we know it wasn't all of them, right? You're going to see how we know that in just a second. But some Jews listened and were persuaded. But also, there were many God-fearing Greek men and quite a few prominent women who listened to Paul and were persuaded to follow Jesus Christ. Now, why were Greek men in the synagogue? Okay, it's a good question. Because they weren't Jewish, right? Were they Jews? No, if they were Jews, it would say they were Jews, but they were Greek. They were Gentile. Okay, in Greece at this time, and we're going to see it in just a second when we get to Athens, but the Greek culture worshipped idols, and in that they worshipped gods, plural, many of them, like thousands and thousands of them. Okay, obviously there are some Greeks that didn't believe in thousands and thousands of gods. They believed in one God. And where could you go hear about one God? There's only one place, and that would have been a Jewish synagogue. So they were there listening about the one God. They were there listening about Jehovah. But now Paul comes in, and he ties it all together. Because now he's talking about the Messiah. He's talking about the Christ, and he is talking about salvation. And so many Greek men were persuaded and followed Christ. But not only that, quite a few not just women. What type of women? Prominent women. Okay, now again, let's think about this. Remember, we're in Greece. We're not in Israel. Could have this have happened in Israel? Mm -mm. No, culturally, this would have never happened in Israel. Can it happen in Greece? Totally different culture. Because women in Greece were educated. They went to school. They could own businesses. They could do things that Jewish women in Israel could not do in that day. And so what did God do through that? Well, the gospel spread through that, right? Okay, do you remember when Paul started this journey? We talked about this, but he did not want to go towards Europe. He did not want to go to Greece. He wanted to go another direction. What direction did he want to go? He wanted to go towards his home spot. He wanted to go all the way towards Turkey and go that way. And he wanted to go towards India in that direction. Well, what would not have been able to be possible if he had went that direction with the gospel? Would women have been saved? No. No, the culture wouldn't have allowed it. So the Holy Spirit stopped him twice and sent him the opposite direction. And now he is in Greece where he's already met a lady in Philippi. What was her name? Lydia. And was she a prominent businesswoman? You better believe it. Was she from Greece? Nope. She was from where Paul was trying to go in the first place. And the gospel gets back there. How do you think it gets back there? Not through Paul, through Lydia. And so now we're in Thessalonica, and more prominent women are being saved. This is the spread of the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit that Paul can't understand because he don't know what God's doing even through him, right? Same with you. We think we know. We think we know exactly what we're supposed to do and exactly where we're supposed to go. And Oh yeah, God might use that. No, God knows exactly, and he might change your plans. He's good at that. 
And he changed Paul's plans. And so some people followed, but not all. But look at what it says in verse 5. But some of the Jews were jealous. So they gathered some troublemakers from the marketplace to form a mob and start a riot. Okay. Now, I guarantee you that this is what's going to happen in the last days as it gets closer and closer to the return of Christ. Two things are always going to happen when the gospel of Jesus Christ is shared as we get closer to Jesus. Some people are going to be saved, right? They are. Some people are going to be saved. But are all people going to be saved? Nope. What's going to happen to the others that aren't saved? There's going to be animosity, and there's going to be persecution that comes out of that every single time. Have we not seen that all through the book of Acts? I mean, did we not see that on Paul's first missionary journey? He was stoned to death, by the way, on his first missionary journey. Did we see that on his first missionary journey? Yes, we saw that on his first missionary journey. And so this is what always happens with the gospel, especially as we get closer and closer to the last days. People will be saved, but other people will hate you and they will persecute you and persecute you and the church because of what you're sharing, because you stand on Scripture and you preach Jesus Christ. That's just the way it is. And it's really interesting to me how they persecute the Apostle Paul. Because here it says that they form a mob and start a riot. Now just listen to what they do. They attacked the home of Jason. Now we don't know much about Jason. All we know about Jason is his name. But he's obviously followed Jesus Christ through the preaching of the Apostle Paul. And now Paul is in his home living with him as he continues to preach and build the church. So that's who Jason is. Now remember, this is not a day. This is not a week. This is over probably several months now because we know Paul had been there at least three weeks because he went three Sabbaths preaching the gospel. So we don't know the time period of this, but it's months probably. And so he's living in Jason's home and the mob that the riot started with go to his home searching for Paul and Silas so they could drag them out of the crowd. Now what were they going to do with them? Probably the same thing that it just happened to Paul and Silas. They're probably going to beat them with sticks or they're going to stone them. They're going to persecute them some way. They're going to harm them. But this is what happens. Verse 6, Not finding them there, they dragged out Jason and some of the other believers instead and took them before the city council. This is what they say. Paul and Silas have caused trouble all over the world. And now they are disturbing our city too. And Jason has welcomed them into his home. And they are all guilty of treason against Caesar. For they profess allegiance to another king named Jesus. Now, this section of Scripture is really interesting to me. Because this is the exact same thing that happened to Jesus Christ. Exactly. I mean, exactly. And of course, Jesus tells us that if we want to follow Him, we have to pick up a cross and follow Him, right? Okay? Meaning that some of the same things that happened to Him are going to happen to us. And if you want to read about some of those same things, go read Matthew 10. Go read Matthew 24, Matthew 25. He kind of tells you what's going to happen to you if you follow Him. But here, Jason is obviously following Jesus, right? He's trying to protect Paul and Silas. He's following Jesus. And the exact same thing that happened to Jesus is happening to Jason. 
Because what happened when Jesus was taken before Pilate to be tried? Well, did they not get a mob together and start a riot? Of course they did. That's what the Pharisees did early that morning as he's standing before Pontius Pilate. How do we know? Well, what did the mob shout out when Pilate tried to release him five different times? Every time Pilate tried to release him, the mob cried, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. But every time Pilate said no, and he came up with another way to let him go. He sent him to another king to let him go. He finally had him flogged, hoping that that would let him go. But even after Jesus stands there, beaten to an inch of his life, the final way they finally get Pilate to crucify him was what? They said, if you don't do this, you're no friend of Caesar. Meaning, treason. What are they accusing Jason of here? Treason. And what was that in their day, in the days of Jesus, now in the days of Jason? Well, the Roman Empire had one king, Caesar. And in that empire, guess what Caesar was? He was God. He was God. And if you had an allegiance or you claimed any other being or entity or thing or whatever was God over Caesar, what were you committing? Treason. Now, Christians all over the empire, the Roman Empire, had another king, right? Who was their king? King Jesus. And they would not bow a knee to Caesar. And so why do you think there's a Roman Colosseum filled with Christians who were killed and martyred there? Why were Christians in the city of Rome put on stakes and burned to light paths? Because they claimed that the Jesus was king, not Caesar. So it started with Jesus standing before Pontius Pilate and it continues even to Jason in Acts chapter 17. And so that's what happened to him. But this is what happened next. Look at verse 8. The people of the city, as well as the city council, were thrown into turmoil by these reports. So the officials forced Jason and the other believers to post bond and then release them. So once they were released, what did they do? This is what they did. Look at verse 10. That very night, the believers sent Paul and Silas to Berea. When Paul and Silas arrived there, they did the same thing they always do. They went to the Jewish synagogue. Okay, now, let's go back just a minute before we talk about Berea because I want to talk about Thessalonica because we don't really see it a whole lot more in the book of Acts, but it's pretty important. Okay, do you think Paul and Silas loved the church of Thessalonica? I would have loved them. Why? They kept me from being beaten, and they kept me from being stoned or whatever they were going to do to me. They protected them and then got them out of the city as fast as they could so that they couldn't be harmed. Paul loved them. How do I know? Well, go read the book of 1 Thessalonians. Do you know what Paul talks about there? His love for them. He's so encouraged by their faith and their work and their service. He's encouraged by that. But do you know what else Paul does in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians? Do you know what else he does? He encourages them. Now, why do you think the church at Thessalonica needed encouragement? It's not hard to figure out. I mean, you just read it. 
persecution. Do you think these Jews that were jealous, and do you think the city officials just let them go on their merry way after all this happened and they never had any other trouble in their life? They were constantly persecuted because of their faith in Christ Jesus. Constantly. How do I know? Because of the book of 1 Thessalonians. And do you know what their hope was? If you know 1 Thessalonians, you should know what their hope was. What does Paul talk about in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5? We get a lot of our theology out of that talking about the end times. He's talking about the rapture, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever read 1 Thessalonians 4? It's a pretty important chapter. You might want to go read that. Because what does Paul say? He tells us what's going to happen to the dead in Christ. And then he also tells us about those who are alive when Christ comes. What's going to happen? He tells us all that. And he tells us when Jesus Christ comes, how is he coming on the clouds, this is the first coming of Jesus, not the second coming Revelation 19. The first coming of Jesus, when He comes on the clouds of heaven, then what's going to happen? First, the dead in Christ, those in the ground, those in the grave, those who have been cremated, whatever it is, those who are followers of Christ will rise up. They will be raptured. They will meet Him in the air. And then those of us who remain on this earth, what's going to happen to us? Same thing. We get to go up and be with Him for how long? Forever, go read it. Forever, go read it. It's important. Paul says that. And then you know what he says right after that? Encourage one another with these words. Because at the very beginning there in 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, I want you to have hope. I don't want you to grieve like the rest of the world. He wants them to have hope. And what is their hope? The return of Christ Jesus. What is our hope if we're getting close to the last days and we're about to be persecuted and go through the same things the Thessalonica church went through? Our hope is the return of Christ Jesus. This was the hope of the early church. The book of Hebrews, you know why the book of Hebrews was written? To encourage believers in the midst of persecution. But it wasn't like the church of Thessalonica. These are first generation believers here in Thessalonica. Hebrews is written to second generation believers. The kids and grandkids of those first believers. And they're even being persecuted. So the writer of Hebrews encourages them. And at the end of chapter 9, he says, guess what? Jesus Christ is coming again. You can bank on it. So the return of Jesus is our greatest hope. That's our greatest hope. I told you this before, but I love J. Vernon McGee. And at the very end of his life, the very end of his life, one of the last sermons he preached, he went back to the seminary that he graduated from, Dallas Theological, and he preached their commencement. And this is what he said, if I had it to do all over again, I would preach more about the Holy Spirit and I would preach more about the second coming of Jesus. And this is what he said. Now, he probably had never talked about the Holy Spirit because he was reformed. I mean, just his theology was so conservative. But this is what he said. He said, I would do that because the Holy Spirit of God is our greatest need and the coming of Jesus Christ is our greatest hope. And it is so true, especially as we get closer to the last days. Our greatest need is the power of the Holy Spirit that we're reading here in the book of Acts. But our greatest hope is the second coming of Jesus. And so that's why we talk about these things. And that's why they're so important in the Bible. And that's why every book in the New Testament talks about the coming of Jesus. They all talk about it. And so that's why Paul writes First and Second Thessalonians. That's why they're there. But now we see that Paul and Silas in Acts chapter 17 come to a city in Berea. And I want you to look at this church because this is a great church. So look why it's a great church. Look at verse 11. It says, And the people of Berea 
were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but probably what that means in Thessalonica, when Paul first started preaching in the synagogue, how do you think those people were when he started preaching Jesus? They were probably pretty argumentative and pretty combative. Okay, well, in Berea, they weren't. There's a reason they weren't. Listen, they were more open-minded than those in Thessalonica, and they listened eagerly to Paul's message because they searched the Scriptures day by day to see if Paul and Silas were teaching the truth. Now that's important. How did they know Paul and Silas were teaching the truth? Because they were searching the Scriptures. What Again, what Scriptures are they searching? The Old Testament! They're reading the Old Testament, and what are they seeing in the Old Testament? They're seeing Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and they're seeing that Paul and Silas are telling them the fulfillment of those prophecies and the words of the Old Testament through Christ Jesus. And they're learning, and they're putting the pieces of the puzzle together. And what is the result? Verse 12, as a result, many Jews believed as did many of the prominent Greek women and men. So just like happened in Thessalonica, the same thing happens here in Berea. But look what happens next. But when some of the Jews, where? In Thessalonica. Learned that Paul was preaching the Word of God in Berea. They went there and stirred up trouble. But the believers acted at once. Sending Paul on to the coast. Okay. Now there are two things here about the church of Berea that are really, really important. And so here's what I want to do. I want to show you that in the Bible. So turn to 1 Bereans, and I want you to see this. Okay, so Bereans chapter 1, you there? Why aren't you there? Well, there's no Bereans in your Bible, right? Okay, now here's the question though. Why is there no Bereans in your Bible? Paul didn't have to write the Berean church. Do you know why Paul writes the letters in the New Testament, almost all of them? To deal with problems and to deal with trouble and to correct things. That's why he has to write the letters of the New Testament. That's why Hebrews was written, by the way. I mean, they're all addressing issues and problems. Okay, did the Berean church have problems to address? Well, obviously not. And do you realize why? Because they searched the Scriptures day by day. They stayed in the Word of God. But they also did something else. When trouble arose, what did they do? They acted at once. They didn't sit around. They didn't lollygag. When God showed them and said to do something, what did they do? They did it. They did it. They were obedient, and they were obedient to the voice of God. And if trouble arose in their midst, they took care of it. And they didn't let it fester, and they didn't say, well, let laying dogs lie, or whatever you say. They dealt with the problem. Is that biblical? Yeah, it's pretty biblical. Is church discipline in the Bible? Yeah, church discipline's in the Bible. Okay, we're not very good at that, especially 2,000 years later in the church, are we? No, that's why we have all the trouble we have in the church, 
And I'm not just talking about individual churches because it's definitely true there, but I'm talking about the church at large. That's why we have denominational splits, and that's why we have all this garbage because we don't act at once and act on God's Word. The Bereans did. And we don't hear from them again. And that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Because God worked through them through His Word. So I love that. So I love the church of Abrea there. But they got Paul and Silas. They got them out of there. They acted at once. And what they did is they sent Paul onto the coast. But this is what they did. Paul went to the coast while Silas and Timothy remained behind. Now we don't know why. Probably because the Jews in Thessalonica wanted Paul's head. That's probably why. And they were calling for Paul's head. And that's who they were looking for. And that's who they wanted to drag out and beat or stone, whatever they wanted to do. But they got Paul out as fast as they could. They sent him to the coast, and then they had some escorts with him. That's what it says, verse 15. Those escorting Paul went with him all the way to Athens. Now, how did they do that? They didn't walk. They had to get on a boat to make that trip. So they took him, got on a boat, and took Paul to Athens. Then those, whoever it was escorting Paul, returned to Berea with these instructions for Paul or for Silas and Timothy to hurry and join him. So obviously Paul is calling them, hey guys, come on, it's time. We've got more work to do. Come and join me. So that's what's happening there. Now look at verse 16 because Paul is in a different city now. He has gone from Thessalonica to Berea. Now he's in Athens. Let's just read a verse here. Verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply troubled by all the idols he saw everywhere in the city. He went to the synagogue to reason with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and he spoke daily in the public square to all who happened to be there. Okay, let's talk about Athens just a little bit because this will kind of set up next week because next week when we come, we're going to look at probably the greatest sermon Paul ever preaches as he's preaching there in Athens. But just so you know, here in verse 16, when Paul arrives in Athens, he's basically a tourist. Because what is he doing? He's waiting for the others to join him because he always worked with others. He always had a group of men that worked with him and helped him, and they are the ones that did the work of the Lord. So he's waiting for Timothy. He's waiting for Silas. He's waiting for Luke, even though Luke doesn't mention himself here. But we know that because Luke's writing all this. He's waiting for them. So basically, he's just walking through Athens, and what does he see? He sees idols everywhere. Because the Bible says there he is deeply troubled because there's idols everywhere in the city. Okay, so Athens is obviously a very prominent city in the ancient world, especially in Hellenistic culture or in Greece culture. But it goes on from there. It really permeates all of Roman culture. Because we know Rome basically comes in and they take over Greece. But when they take over Greece, they take on a lot of Greek culture. What was the common language throughout the Roman Empire? What's the New Testament written in? Okay, that's the common language. Greek was the common language in the Roman Empire. So it would be like English today in the world. 
you can pretty much travel most places in the world and you can get by with English because so many people in the world know English because it is the common language. So in the Roman Empire, it was Greek. It wasn't English. So they took on their language. But not only did they take on their language, they took on their politics. Where do you think the word democracy or a democratic form of government started? started in Athens. Athens had the first democratic government in the world. And what was the Roman Empire and the Roman form of government based upon? This, Greek. Okay? Athens was basically the philosophical and intellectual capital of the world. Have you ever heard of Plato? You ever heard of Aristotle? You ever heard of Socrates? Okay, where do you think those dudes lived? They lived in Athens. They all lived in Athens. Okay, so this is kind of the Oxford of the day. Okay, Athens was not the political center of Greece. That would be Corinth, and we'll get there a little later. But it would kind of be like today if you travel to London. London is the capital of England, and London is kind of where all the commerce happens and all the politics happens. But what would be the intellectual center of England? Not far out of London, there's a place called Oxford. And Oxford is where all the big heads go because that's where they think, that's where all the philosophy is done, that's where all the intellectual things are done. That would be very similar to ancient Greece, Corinth and Athens. Athens was not a huge place. It was only about 10,000 people when Paul went there. Now think about the difference. He had just been in Thessalonica. It's 200,000. So now he goes to a city of 10,000. But it really is kind of the center of culture and the center of the Roman Empire. And so he's there, and what does he see? He sees idols everywhere. It's estimated that in Athens during Paul's time, there were up to 30,000 idols. 30,000 of them. That's a lot of idols. It's a lot of gods to worship. And it deeply disturbed Paul. I never forget the first time I ever went to Haiti. We worked in a city called Laagon. And in Laagon, that is kind of for Haiti anyway, the capital of voodoo and witchcraft. And when you're driving through the city on the most prominent road in the city, the largest road, sets a little chapel. And I say it's small, but it's one of the largest. But it's just a voodoo church, sanctuary. It's where they worship. And all around that thing, all you see is little idols. Some are carved, some are made of all kinds of things. But you just see gazillions of idols all around this voodoo temple. And I can remember, even as you drive by there, just from a spiritual perspective, I mean, it's almost hard to breathe because of the darkness. And so that's kind of what Paul was experiencing in Athens. The spiritual darkness and the spiritual warfare that is going on in that city and you think when he writes to the, the book of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 6, I mean, he's writing about what happens in places like Athens and in places like Ephesus. There's spiritual battles and spiritual warfare going on because they're worshiping other gods, they're worshiping idols. 
Now you realize not much has changed in 2,000 years, right? Not even in America. We worship idols. I mean, big time. Big time. Our kids worship idols. If you want to see an idol, go to a Taylor Swift concert. Listen to your kids talk about her. We got a bunch of idols. We got thousands of them. Some are people in our day from New Ageism. Some are birds, some are animals, some are trees. But our kids are taught to worship everything but the living God. And it is no different than Paul's day in Athens. No different. And so as we get closer to the return of Christ, you're going to see more and more of that. So open your eyes and understand the times that we're living. Amen. Thank you.